Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Earlier today, the dollar was just starting to get a bid in strengthening against rival currencies, but now it's back down and weakening against uh, the rival currencies. Here to talk about whether we can expect to see the ongoing weakness continue uh, for the dollar is Doug Borthwick, Managing Director and Head of FX at Chapdelaine & Co. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for being with us. You know, this is a really important question, and I just want to frame this issue first, because I was reading a story about how the pace of uh, dollar-denominated emerging market bond sales are hitting a record so far this year. And this is basically a leveraged bet that the dollar will continue to depreciate and that emerging market currencies will continue to appreciate. Is there any risk that all these investors are wrong? Well, there's certainly a risk that the investors are wrong. That There always is. There's no one-way bets. But I think that one thing that they're putting their, their money on is the fact that there'll be a continuation of the dollar weakening. Now, dollar weakness is something that this administration has been pushing from day one when President Trump's talked about making the U.S. more competitive. And uh, now that's certainly the case, and we're seeing weakness in the U.S. dollar. However, it's, it's expounded somewhat by what's happening with reserve managers and how they're managing the reserves, given uh, you know, how they're moving money into China and moving it out of the U.S. or not allocating towards U.S. Treasuries as much as they used to. And what's really interesting is that once the SDR, the IMF's currency, came into being and then they decided that China should be part of that, they made China a 10% or 11% allocation. And uh, that meant while the U.S. is a 42%. And it means that if the folks in reserve managers start building up Chinese reserves, as you'd expect to, because China's now a rather large trade, um, trade uh, partner with them, then they need to really start moving money into Chinese uh, currency and out of U.S. currency. We, we estimate right now that if they allocate 10% of the reserves to China, that's about $1.3 trillion that they would no longer be buying in U.S. treasuries, but instead be putting into China. And that ends up as being 20% of all of the holdings of U.S. treasuries that are held by foreigners right now. And so this constant drip we're seeing from reserve managers, and the Bundesbank's already said that they're buying China and said the central bank in France has said they're buying China. They're not the only ones. As more folks buy Chinese, and that means there's less dollar demand, then obviously the U.S. dollar is going to start weakening. And we've been seeing that continually over the past year. Doug Borthwick, uh, a more prosaic question. Did you uh, forecast the uh, strength in sterling against the dollar? I haven't forecasted the strength in sterling against the dollar. I've sort of stepped away from sterling given Brexit, but certainly we did say when it was euro was at 104 at the start of last year that it was going to weaken considerably through 120. And we see the euro continuing to weaken, and we see no reason why we won't see 130 in the next coming months. Okay, but the reason I'm bringing up the pound sterling is, you know, when we speak to Forex uh, experts, and it's always about how the market, you know, trades off of, you know, little pieces of news. I didn't hear anybody over the last, you know, two weeks say, boy, you know, you've really got to go short the dollar, long the pound. And, you know, you would have made four and a quarter percent just on a a spot basis. 
that seemed like a really good trade, and I haven't heard anyone mention it. Yeah, I think that coin flippers would be very good in telling you where sterling's going, but not necessarily Forex experts. The interesting thing with the pound is because of the uncertainty on Brexit, is it going to be a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit, folks are mostly staying away from discussing it. And what you do find, though, is that, you know, as the dollar's weakening across the board against every single currency, sterling's picking up on that. Yeah, so the sterling I mean, I'm looking strength at... It's really based on the euro strength or, or the weakness in dollar against the yen. It's it's just getting picked up in, in the whole froth of it. Yeah, but I mean, all you got to do is look at a chart. You got higher highs and, and higher lows. That's certainly the case, but then, you know, they could turn around in the UK and say they're doing a hard, hard Brexit and we're looking at 130 in the sterling. So it's... Sterling's, sterling's less simple to, to really identify and to divine. All right, so what's the best call you've got right now to make some money over the, last, uh, over the next, uh, let's say, two to three months? I continue to believe that sterling is going to move much, much higher, and this is really the beginning of the cycle. I think we're going to see these 10 to 15% moves annually for the next couple of years of dollar weakness. Euro is going to be a big beneficiary of this. I think folks think that dollar yen is going to continue around this 110, maybe move back to 115. I think that's wrong. I think we'll see 105 in dollar yen. Dollar Canada, Canada has a trade surplus with the U.S. I think we're going to see that move lower, the dollar against the Canada, and I think the dollar Mexican is continuing to move lower as well. So you're a dollar bear. Dollar bear across the board, absolutely. So uh, one thing that I'm trying to square is, let's say uh, the U.S. economic picture is as good as people think it is and perhaps even better. Let's say that there is an upside surprise. We have seen the City Surprise Index uh, showing that there have been more upside surprises of late. Um, at what point, especially given the fact that the Federal Reserve is going to be hiking interest rates, at what point is that enough to encourage people back to the dollar? Or is this something that's structural that that is going to continue regardless? Certainly, I think that it's something that's very structural. Remember, before the European bailout of Greece, you know, the euro was trading around this 130 level. And then you saw a huge move into the dollar and out of the European currency. And now, if anything, we have, we've heard nothing about Greece, nothing about Italy leaving the eurozone. And so what we're seeing now is folks not necessarily deciding they don't like the U.S., but they're certainly deciding that maybe it's time to get back into the euro and unwind some of their safety play that they moved into the United States. And so, you know, moving up to 130 doesn't mean that we don't like the dollar anymore. It just means that, you know what, we feel more comfortable with the euro. And so where the Fed is, I think the Fed's very much behind the curve. You know, I think that the Fed could probably raise another 150 basis points before folks start thinking, oh, you know what, now the U.S. dollar is more interesting to us. Remember, interest rates over in China are much higher than they are in the U.S. right now. And as long as reserve managers need to get into China, and that means taking reserves maybe out of the United States, then that's, that, that's going to be a move that's going to see dollar weakening. It's going to see U.S. interest rates naturally start to rise. And one thing that certainly will allow the Fed to raise rates will be if the dollar weakens considerably. Does that mean that we're going to see a bout of accelerated inflation? Well, I think that inflation, you know, I think one of the best indicators of inflation was when Walmart moved into Mexico and suddenly price, inflation almost disappeared overnight. And I think that the Internet's done something very similar to that with, with prices and that we don't, there's, there's, now we have so much clarity in what pricing should be that it's hard to raise prices because we can always find somewhere else that's cheaper. So I think that when you look at prices rising above 2% in the U.S., I think that sometimes it's a fool's dream in that we can always seem to find pricing less elsewhere. So I think high inflation is something that's really going to be on the back burner for a number of years. 
All right, we're going to leave it there, but thanks very much for being with us. Douglas Borthwick is Managing Director and the Head of FX at Chaplet Dane and Company. <laughs> President Donald Trump slapping tariffs on solar panels and also on uh, washing machines imported into the United States. Here to tell us more about the tariffs and the effect on the solar industry is James Evans. He is our global clean energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. James, thanks for being with us. You know, last time I believe that we went through this whole tariff uh, issue regarding the solar industry, Chinese companies decided to just relocate their firms to Taiwan. Isn't that correct? Um, yes, that's correct. So um, there was anecdotal evidence that a lot of the Chinese manufacturers tried to skirt the previous tariffs that the U.S. put on the imports of solar modules and cells by setting up operations in other countries in Southeast Asia, like Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand. So th hopefully with the new Section 201 tariffs that have been imposed, that won't happen because these tariffs are effectively impacted on every single country uh, no matter where you are. So it's not something that can be so easily skirted by a lot of the Chinese solar producers. Okay, now I, I just want you to hold that thought and then tell me the manufacturers that are in the United States that have been asking for this tariff relief, uh, they're bankrupt, right? I mean, there's Suniva and SolarWorld. So a lot of the uh, the manufacturers that you've just mentioned have gone bankrupt over the recent years. Um, part of that is because of a massive buildup in production capacity of the solar modules in the in China and in Southeast Asia, and so a lot of those panels are being able to be produced at a very very low cost. And uh, you know we're operating in a very global market, so those panels are, are ending up in the U.S. market, and it's been hard for a lot of the U.S. manufacturers to compete with the the scale of production that a lot of the Chinese manufacturers have been able to produce. So, uh, James, so if this is going to potentially allow produce, uh, producers in the U.S. to charge higher rates for their solar panels, that means that some consumers may not choose solar panels because it's more expensive. How much does this dampen the expansion of solar energy in the U.S.? That's right, Lisa. So the big fear about these tariffs is that uh, actually most of the jobs in the U.S. market aren't related to manufacturing of solar panels or solar cells. They're actually in installing the panels, in developing the projects, and in making equipment that goes around the panels. So kind of the trackers, the racks, and a lot of the electrical equipment. So there's concerns about some of those uh, job implications. But, it, but also, you're right, um, if the panel costs that are imported into the U.S. will increase, then we're going to see the impact of that on a lot of the project economics are going to worsen. Um, it's going to have the most impact on the larger utility scale projects where kind of module costs are a higher share of the total system. Um, the kind of residential and commercial scale, so the smaller kind of solar developments, may be less impacted by this because there's a little bit more margin in there. There's a little bit more room for a lot of the panel producers to, to get a higher price, whereas um, you may see some delays in development of utility scale, the large solar developments over the next year or two until um, this kind of module tariff digresses over the next four years. James, did the... U.S. producers of polysilicon, did they end up connecting or hooking up with Chinese companies after the first round of uh, sort of uh, imports of, of low-cost solar panels? So polysilicon, you, you're referring to the, the raw material of solar panels. And 
Um, effectively, what, what happened was when the U.S. Import, uh, imposed tariffs on imports of U.S. modules, um, sorry, in Chinese modules into the U.S. market, China responded by imposing tariffs on polysilicon, which is the raw material for solar panels, into China from the U.S. And that's still not been resolved. That's still an issue that's ongoing. And there are a number of U.S. polysilicon manufacturers or producers that have found it really, really hard to compete uh, now that China has such a stranglehold on global module production. Uh, and they can't effectively get their product into the main consuming market of China. So as part of the um, ITC investigation and uh, this kind of announcement, they've also said that they want to have a separate investigation into whether there's any kind of deal that can be done to remove the previous tariffs and the Chinese tariffs on polysilicon. But given the fact that these Section 201 tariffs haven't really gone down very well, uh, not only in China, but in, in the rest of uh, the world, especially in Southeast Asian markets, um, that is going to be a bit of a, uh, a long uh, long shot, if you ask me. How much of a price increase are consumers going to see in solar panels as a result of this? So uh, from a, a typical basis, you're, you're talking about a kind of a 10% um, increase. So it's uh, on the larger scale utility um, sort kind of side. From a, a consumer perspective, it's going to be in the, in the lower single digits. So there's going to be some small increase, incremental increase in this. Um, but uh, that's going to fade with time. It's going to fade as the tariffs go down over the next four years. They start at 30% and they decrease by 5% every year. But they're also going to go down because uh, panel costs are going to continue to fall. You know, we've seen dramatic declines in the cost of a solar panel. Last In 2016, you saw a decline of about a third in the cost of a solar panel. Last year, it was about 12%. And we're anticipating that those panel cross declines are going to continue going forwards. So you don't think necessarily that this move is going to undermine the expansion of solar or the industry more broadly? I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be slightly disruptive in the near term, especially for some of the larger projects, as I mentioned. But I think that um, the fundamentals are there and that the, solar is a technology. The costs are coming down. It's not like you have a fixed fossil fuel base that you have to try and support or the fossil fuel prices. So this is a bit like on the semiconductor side. The costs are coming down over time. And that's going to continue. That trend is going to continue. So there is, I think, a secular shift towards not only solar but also other technologies like wind energy um, that is going to see these co the costs decline further and further. Um, and you're going to see more and more of this into the market. There might be some near-term disruption, at least in the US, over the next year or two as a result of these. But it's, uh, it's definitely going to be a trend that we're going to see continue going forwards. James Evans, thank you so much for being with us. James Evans is Global Clean Energy Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence coming to us uh, from London talking about the tariffs that are being placed on solar panels and what that means for the industry. Well, we got some sense today of what J.P. Morgan plans to do with the money that it is saving from the tax overhaul. It's saying that it's planning to earmark $20 billion over five years to boost lending, expand its branch network, and increase gifts to charity. Uh, here to tell us what this means for shareholders is Charles Peabody, who we always love having on, uh, Managing Director and Research Analyst at Compass Point. Charles, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So what's your first take My on pleasure. this? Well, you know, I think it's clearly a, a net positive um, for Morgan and, and the industry in, in the sense that 
it's clear that those institutions that have invested in their franchise and their employees over a long period of time and consistently have done better than those that have not. Um, just in the last decade, we saw J.P. Morgan do much better than Citigroup, and that's because Morgan was investing in its products and businesses, whereas Citigroup was capital constrained. Well, could just I, I want to break in there because do we really have a sense of what these investments really mean? I mean, we do have a sense that you know the the sort of minimum wage that they'll pay for twenty two thousand workers will go from fifteen to eighteen dollars an hour. But beyond that, what does this really mean? Well, you know, I break it down into four pieces. I mean, there's ten billion being earmarked for affordable housing finance. And I, I think as an aside, you're going to see JP Morgan invest much more aggressively going forward in, in building out their mortgage banking operation, which had really shrunk over the last 10 years. Um, and I suspect acquisitions may be part of that. Um, you're going to see $4 billion invested in, in supporting small business growth, and that's been the fastest growing portfolio. They've got about a $20 billion portfolio there. And you're going to see you know, another half a billion incremental investment in philanthropic investments. And so the balance of that $20 billion, which is about $5.5 billion, is going to be invested in things like employees, branch expansion, innovation, et cetera. Um, so I think those investments, you know, J.P. Morgan's done invested wisely. I think they will enhance the value of the franchise over a long period of time. So I'm just curious, uh, Charles, why do you think the stock is not reacting today? Well, you know, short term, um, one of the things that you have to acknowledge is this is going to add about a billion to a billion and a half to um, J.P. Morgan's expense operating expense structure. And so you're, in a sense, increasing the fixed costs of that expense structure, hoping that growth will offset that, that fixed cost. Um, but that remains to be seen. So uh, one thing so, that I was noticing, Charles, is that you actually were not that bullish, though, on J.P. Morgan's shares. Well, I, I think the shares are pretty fully priced um, is where I'm coming from. Um, you know, uh, these actions aside, I mean, the stock is um, trading, you know, almost at two times book. You know, Jamie Dimon even said that, you know, at two times book, his own um, investment in his own stock was not necessarily the best investment. In other words, he, he, he rationalized that he could buy the stock between one and a half, two times book, but he, he sort of capped it at two times book. All right. So if you believe that the stock is a little too expensive for investors, what stock do you recommend people buy? What company do you think has not been overpriced? Well, you know, I, I will tell you, Tim, the, the BKX index, which reflects the, the large cap banks, is around 115 today. Um, the pre-crisis top in that BKX index was about 120 to 121. So we're within 5% of that all-time high. Um, and as a, as a relative to the S&P 500, the BKX index hit a high in March of 2017. And despite all the hoopla around deregulation and tax reform, that BKX index has not been able to make a new high relative to the S&P 500. So I'm, I'm thinking we're topping out here, and I'm not um, anxious other than very, very, very short-term trading. I'm not anxious to add to my long positions here. One thing I I'd be to, peeling off. Charles, I wanted to just follow up on one aspect that you said. You said that you think that J.P. Morgan could potentially make an acquisition of a mortgage lender. Is Did I hear you correctly? Yeah, I mean, they, they're 
they want to reinvest in the mortgage space. Um, what has held them back has been the litigious environment. Um, and if, if we can get some cleanup of that litigation risk, um, I think you'll see them go out and, and start to invest in both organically and inorganically um, in that space and, and rebuild that, that mortgage banking franchise that used to be quite substantial 10 years ago. And would they start to issue uh, non-agency mortgage-backed securities again? And, you know, if you can, as I said, if you can clean up the lit- litigation risks, I think they would do FHA lending again. I think, you know, Jamie Dimon talked about that in his annual letter um, to shareholders. Well, Charles, uh, if uh, J.P. Morgan is too expensive uh, and you mentioned the possibility of adding to their mortgage business, is there a particular stock or even a non-bank financial company that you believe is undervalued? Well, on a relative basis, you know, Goldman Sachs has been um, treated very poorly by the marketplace um, year to date, largely because of their weak, thick trading businesses. Um, yet the other three businesses, um, plus their equity trading, are doing very well. Um, I think if we get some added volatility, and, and there are indications that we're starting to see that, we could see better activity. So in, in many respects, I would say the thick trading business bottomed in the second quarter of 17, and there's some leverage from that coming back this year. I want to thank you very much for being with us, uh, Charles Peabody. He is Managing Director, Research Analyst at Compass Point, and giving us his thoughts about the banking industry. House of Cards and other Netflix originals, Orange is the New Black, Stranger Things. Here to tell us about the success of Netflix is Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, Paul Sweeney, is this all about subscriber growth or is it about something else? Yeah, it really is about subscriber growth. Um, you know, this is a company where investors really focus on the the growth of the subscribers. Not, uh, you know, and really internationally, that's really where the bulk of the growth is coming from for this company. Um, you know, it's not really an earning story yet. It's not even a revenue growth story at the moment. It's really investors are focusing on subscribers because eventually, you know, you get the more subscribers you get. Uh, paying more uh, every month, and the company just put through another price increase in October of last year. Uh, that drives revenue and ultimately uh, profits and cash flow. Um, so this is clearly a momentum stock has been. It's been a phenomenal stock, up another 60% last year. Uh, and uh, what's driving the momentum is the subscriber story. I guess if people like the shows, it perhaps doesn't surprise them that it dominates their life uh, more than Goldman Sachs does because their market cap is now beyond where Goldman Sachs is. And I'm just struggling what needs to happen with Netflix to legitimize this market cap and even uh, translate into upside for right. share investors. That's what, uh, you know, the company when they kind of came, well, not when they came public, but when they really started talking about their um uh, you know, they're uh, over the top uh, viewing as opposed to the CDs. They said, listen, this is going to be an expensive uh, gambit for us. We're going to have to buy a lot of programming. We're going to have to invest in a lot of programming. Um, but we believe in what uh, they call the virtuous cycle, which is the more we spend on programming, the more subscribers will sign up. And the more subscribers that sign up and pay more, that will drive revenue, that will drive cash flow, and that will drive profitability, which will give us even more money to invest in more 
product, which again will attract more subscribers. So um, where they are in the life cycle there is it's, uh, they are absolutely in this toward growth uh, uh, stage. Uh, they're in every country around the world with a notable exception uh, of China. And so their strategy now is to invest in programming to drive subscribers. And the U.S. market has become and continues to, uh, to be very profitable and the profitability uh, margins in the U.S. continue to grow. Many of their uh, international markets have also turned profitable and uh, expect to be fully profitable uh, by the end of this year. And then that's really when uh, the street looks for earnings and free cash flow growth. Because when you take a look at the company now, they are significantly free cash flow negative. You know, so let's, the, let's put that in plain English. Yeah. They're expecting to burn through $4 billion of cash this year. Exactly. It's just extraordinary. And where's that cash going? It's going to fund uh, about $8 billion of programming, which is the biggest programming budget in Hollywood by far. Just by point of comparison, HBO will spend about $2.5 billion on programming. Uh, so how are they financing that? programming uh, in the debt market. They um, they have been uh, issuing debt over the past couple of years, um, and the debt market loves this company. And uh, so that is kind of their source of capital. And really, if you take a look at street consensus numbers, um, you know they don't have this company turning free cash flow positive until 2021 or maybe 2022. Uh, keeps getting pushed back um, as they uh, continue to invest. Paul Sweeney, all right, they've got about $6.5 billion of debt, and uh, they've got all these great deals uh, to create original programming. I believe 2019 is the target for Netflix. They want to have at least 50% of it be original content. I wonder if you could contrast that with what's going on at Twitter and their content, which is user-generated. And uh, just to note that Bloomberg uh, LP uh, has a venture with uh, Twitter for at TikTok. That's a 24-7 streaming news service. So what does Twitter need in order to grab those eyeballs? Twitter has about uh, 325 million monthly users, which you know sounds like a lot. It is a big number, but relative to the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world, which have you know one to two billion subs- uh, subscribers every, every month, it's not. And uh, so when you're out there competing for advertising dollars, which Netflix doesn't have to do, Twitter really relies on advertising dollars uh, what they're finding is that 325 million user base is not enough to really attract digital advertising dollars. So, and it's unlikely that they can materially grow that much more. Um, although we are seeing some growth, so what they have to do is they have to make sure that those people that are on Twitter stay longer, are more engaged. And how do you do that? Like a lot of companies, Twitter's investing in video because that actually is engaging, and that's where advertisers want to place their money. Uh, so we did just get the news this morning that Anthony Noto, uh, the former now chief operating officer of Twitter, was departing uh, to join a lending startup, SoFi, or not really a startup, but a lending arm, uh, SoFi. How big of a, of a problem is this for Twitter? You know, I, I do think it's an issue uh, for Twitter, uh, both in media term and longer term. Uh, Anthony Noto is very well regarded uh, by investors and, and Wall Street in general. Uh, he has that rare combination of operational experience, which he's gleaned over the last several years at uh, at Twitter, as, as well as a very deep financial background, having been an, a banker and a CFO. Uh, so he really brought some stability to Twitter. And it's really, it's, it's doubly important at Twitter, his role, because the CEO, Jack Dorsey, the founder and CEO, only spends half of his time at Twitter. He spends the other half at his other public company, Square. So you kind of have a part-time CEO. You need a strong COO. That's what Anthony Noto is. Now what do you do? Yeah, Paul Sweeney, thank you so much. We will find out what they do as we follow this and other uh, stories in the media with you. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Definitely a tale of two stories this morning. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.